Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, welcome again to ADH at the beginning of a new week. The station of honest, open and non-woke opinion. I'm Alan Jones, wherever you're watching in the world, around the world, and we are ADH TV. In sport as in life, what's pleasure to some is poison to others. The Swans copped the fifth worst hiding in AFL grand final history, 81 points, but nothing to be ashamed of. As I will say later, they're young, They've got a good coach and they'll rise again as all good teams do. Just on that, by the way, I'll have a bit to say about the grand final luncheon. Perhaps hypocrisy was the biggest winner. We've had an interesting visitor to Australia, still here, another medical expert from Stanford University, ignored during coronavirus. Professor Jai Bakachiria, I referred to him often but you were threatened with cancellation if you gave people like the good professor from Stanford any airtime. What would he know compared to the chief health officer? What do they call them? Chief health officer, whatever the hell they were, those people who bored us stupid every day. Anyway, Professor Bhattacharya warned that lockdown policies were, quote, producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. And he cited the worsening of cardiovascular disease outcomes fewer cancer screenings, deteriorating mental health, that keeping students out of school was a grave injustice. He was accused of arguing that we should let the virus rip. That was a lie. The real fraud in all of this was the US Chief Medical Officer, Tony Fauci, who declared that people like Professor Bhattacharya were talking, quote, total nonsense and were, quote, very dangerous. Two years on, Professor Bhattacharya has visited the most locked down city in the world and has expressed concern that many of the negative consequences he warned would arise from lockdowns, and I warned as well, have come to pass across Australia. And these include a high rate of excess deaths from treatable conditions which were delayed with their medical care, spiralling rates of mental distress among teenagers and the ongoing impact of interrupted schooling on children. Put simply, he is rightly critical, as I was from day one, of the way health bureaucrats manage the pandemic. You can find details of Professor Bhattacharya's visit at Dr. J. Inoz, D-R-J-A-Y. It's on your screen there. There you are. D-R-J-A-Y-I-N-O-Z.com. D-R, worth checking it out. D-R-J-A-Y-I-N-O-Z.com. Now, on matters of health, a welcome fight back by the supporters of Dr. Charlie Teo, who has dedicated his 35-year career to the most difficult brain surgery cases that other neurosurgeons can't or won't take on. He has treated 11,000 patients, has countless others seeking his help. He's raised more than $51 million for brain cancer research. He's established the largest tumour bank in the Southern Hemisphere. He's a world leader and many of the world's top neurosurgeons vouch for Dr. Teo. But last year, the New South Wales Medical Council imposed a series of conditions on his practice after jealous informants made allegations that Charlie Teo gave patients false hope. Dr. Teo rightly believes he is the victim of an unjustified witch hunt and he's been virtually blackballed here and overseas. 
that there are six well-respected surgeons from around the globe who've given references to the Medical Council of New South Wales in support of Dr. Charlie Teo. And they include Stanford Medicine's Associate Professor of Neurosurgery. As one Sydney man said after his daughter was given her own death sentence, quote, I challenge any of Dr. Teo's critics to tell me what they would do if they received the diagnosis we did. If they were told this is the end of the road for their mum, daughter or sister, they would come running to find Dr. Teo, unquote. Charlie Teo should be allowed back immediately to do what he does best, give hope where things seem hopeless. I mentioned last week that the political tide is turning around the world. The Italians went to the polls at the weekend and it appears that Italy will have its first government headed by a woman, Giorgia Maloney. She's 45 years old, Giorgia Maloney. She created the party, the Brothers of Italy, with a handful of allies 10 years ago. She now faces all the economic and military crises faced by the West, but at least her thinking gives hope. The Italian economy is the third largest in the Eurozone, but it's saddled with debt, 150% of GDP. She's campaigned on a platform of low taxes, an end to mass immigration, Catholic family values, and an assertion of Italy's national interests abroad. Of course, Italy is historically unstable politically. They've had almost 70 governments since 1946. Giorgio Maloney was raised by a simple mother, a single mother in a working class suburb, and she rails against what she calls LGBT lobbies, woke ideology, and the violence of Islam. She's a Donald Trump supporter. The political tide is turning, as it seems also to be happening in New South Wales. A recent poll shows that the coalition's primary vote in New South Wales is now at 30%, a 12-point drop since the last election. Premier Perrottet was criticised by 45% of the voters, and the figures suggest that Labor would win an election in New South Wales if the polling figures were reflected on polling day. But this is what happens when you go woke and go left and you're supposed to be a conservative government. Well, we won't be woke tonight, I can tell you. Plenty on the agenda that will interest you. Stay with us. You are with ADH and I'm Alan Jones. Well, there have been plenty of post-mortems in relation to the AFL Grand Final and a lot of disappointment for Swans supporters. I said earlier, never mind, you've got a young team, all you Swannies, and you've got a good coach and your time will come. That is not the point of my comment tonight. Plenty of publicity about who was there at the MCG at the Grand Final lunch. The answer is all the hotshots from the Prime Minister down. No shortage of billionaires, millionaires, the media and the corporate so-called leaders who aren't leaders bootlaces. Plenty of people from the Albanese government and the last Morrison government, state premiers, big business. But what they don't understand is the public are awake up. As I've been telling you now for months, said Brian of the gathering of millionaires, media and corporates, and I quote, yes, and I'm sure they're all in furious agreement in the group think cause celeb of climate change. Meanwhile, we mere mortals struggle to pay our power bills and or go cold. Joe wrote about the luncheon, I'll give an extra vote to Daniel Andrews for not being with that high achiever elitist pack, Albanese included. That is not the Australia most people live in. Banjo got it right, quote, I'd be surprised if the combined IQ passed 1,000, unquote. As I've told you many times, I'd be surprised if they've read anything about climate change and the comments of world-renowned scientists. They're just part of the woke brigade who can afford whatever price might be charged for energy. 
Michael said, quote, and this is the guts of it, as they all flew in in their private jets, quote, how's Albo's carbon footprint burning fossil fuels on his private jet, yet screwing us with energy prices for this mystical fallacy known as net zero? Delusions of grandeur, what an absolute farce. And Hannah said, interesting how Albanese, the poor boy socialist, is Tony everywhere, enjoying all the perks and excesses of the rich and famous. How the righteous change, she wrote. It feels so good traveling in a private jet, doesn't it? Another, Albanese, three states and three games in one weekend. That was the Cowboys versus Parramatta in Townsville, then down to Melbourne for the AFL Grand Final, and then up to Sydney for Souths versus Penrith. Says Carver's sister, that's got to be a record. Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, taxpayers, of course, picked up the tab for Albanese, his plus one and his security detail to fly around in the VIP jet. Not a murmur from the press. I'm still waiting for the headline announcing that the Prime Minister has started work, unquote. Now, I don't have a problem with the Prime Minister going to all these gigs. What I do have a problem with is the same Prime Minister telling 34 OECD members in Paris a couple of months ago about climate change, and I quote, the fight against climate change must be at the heart of global cooperation. Our goal is for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower, unquote. My judgment on that is that every syllable is rubbish. We've only got to look at Germany, now under a green coalition firing up mothballed coal-fired generators because their dear old renewables can't do the job. Austria is following Germany, reverting to coal power. And then there's the Netherlands, expecting farmers to achieve a 40% drop in emissions that would require 30% fewer cattle. Yet the Netherlands is the world's second largest agricultural exporter in the world, but now their farmers are being targeted. So thousands of tractor-driving farmers were demonstrating east of Amsterdam arguing that the future of farmers is being destroyed by this net zero alarmism. Well, back to the hypocrisy at the MCG, because the generation of electricity only contributes 32% towards greenhouse gas emissions, if that were a problem. Transport is 18%. Agriculture, 14%. The emissions from transport and agriculture are 32%, about the same as for electricity generation. Yet here is the co-author of the 82% renewables by 2030, Albo, in eight years' time, that is, Prime Minister Albanese flying everywhere in his private jet, rubbing shoulders with billionaires at an MCG lunch, who've all flown in on their private jets, and there's the corporate world, brown-nosing to the same Prime Minister, who's telling them that the world will be a better place as we push to 82% renewables in eight years' time, and not one of them with the guts to say to the Prime Minister Albanese, you better think again, Albo, you're the author of an economic suicide note, unquote. The biggest winner at the MCG on Saturday was not Geelong, but hypocrisy. And I want to make one other point. Everywhere we turn these days, the Prime Minister is the big rabbitos supporter, South Sydney Rugby League, in his blood. Really? In another age, and I have resisted saying this before, but I'm saying it now, as mailman say bugger it. In another age, I was approached by George Piggins to come to South Sydney as head of its football operations to, along with George and his wife, Nolene, save the club. I just finished coaching Balmain. I had a busy professional life. I didn't really have the time, but I believed in South, so I took on the gig. I first raised money from Kerry Packer. We had very few players. I won't go into the detail. But I want to tell you, I can name leading figures, one of them is Albo, whom I never cited. 
and George never sighted and Nolene never sighted when the gloves were off at South Sydney. We were thrown out of the competition. We didn't see them. We fought our guts out in the courts and outside the courts to save Souths. Those who profess today that Souths is in their blood were unsighted. I repeat, the biggest grand final winner on Saturday at the MCG was hypocrisy. The amount of rubbish piling up around issues that politicians choose to sidestep, the amount of rubbish, you couldn't jump over it. The latest amongst many is the fact that Indigenous groups and Greens have attacked the Andrews government in Victoria for naming a new Melbourne hospital after Queen Elizabeth II, claiming that the move will make Aboriginal Victorians feel culturally unsafe. Daniel Andrews has announced that a re-elected Labor government will spend between $850 million and $1.05 billion on rebuilding the Maroondah Hospital in Melbourne's East. Mr Andrews said the rebuilt hospital would be named after Queen Elizabeth II as a quote as a mark of respect for her unwavering commitment to healthcare and our community. Well, the decision was quickly condemned by the co-chairman of Victoria's First People's Assembly, which many of you wouldn't even know existed and you'd be forgiven for that ignorance. This is the indigenous body established by the Andrews government to develop a treaty framework. That's another story. But the First People's Assembly co-chairman, one Marcus Stewart, made the ridiculous observation, quote, with just a few words, the government has turned the Maroondah Hospital into a culturally unsafe place for our people. This is a stark reminder of why a treaty is so critical. It can put an end to the hurtful platitudes of the powerful, unquote. To be fair to Daniel Andrews, he stood his ground and said, quote, this is a new hospital that's going to get a new name. It's a fitting tribute to somebody who was a great supporter of our health system. Well, Lydia Thorpe couldn't help herself. The Greens Victorian Senator calling it an insult to now colonise us again, unquote. I'm not too sure how many Australians can keep up with this business about a treaty and a voice to Parliament, but Anthony Dillon is a postdoctoral fellow in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the Australian Catholic University. He says he identifies as both Aboriginal and Australian. And he said, quote, I believe that the current popular ideologies which portray Indigenous people merely as victims of history and white Australia as in the invasion and racism should be challenged. He said, I'm of the opinion that these dogmatically held beliefs are doing as much damage to ind Indigenous people as drugs and alcohol. Anthony Dillon joins me for a dose of common sense. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. You were quite right. There is tremendous support out there in many ways for disadvantaged Australians, including Indigenous Australians, but this talk of feeling culturally unsafe because of the Victorian government naming a new hospital after Queen Elizabeth alienates that support, does it not? Uh, it's, it's just ridiculous. I mean, and now you're going to have ordinary Indigenous people who wouldn't have thought about it. They've had this seed planted in their mind now. Oh, oh, it's culturally unsafe. Never thought of that before. And so you've created, you're potentially creating a problem where there, there was none. And what does Lydia mean to be recolonised again? What is that? I don't know. Do you know? I don't. No, no. It's ridiculous. It's, <laughs> well, if you don't, we've you know, got hospital. no hope. I mean, there's a proliferation of these Indigenous groups. Do they go any way towards solving the violence towards women in the Northern Territory? 
No, and you know, you've been talking. You, myself, Jacinta, and others have been talking about this for decades. Yep. Uh, no, it's certainly. I haven't seen them uh, talking about it. Uh, they're more caught up in these trivialities. Yes, but see, the Greens and some Indigenous groups have decided that Aboriginal Australians would feel culturally unsafe at this new hospital in Melbourne. I mean, you're an Indigenous Australian. You identify as being Australian. You've attacked these preconceived notions of victimhood, but they call you a fraud. Why is there such hatred, hatred from the left towards people like you and Jacinta Price? Uh, Because it's it's upsetting their little kingdom. They've built little empires for themselves. Um, And, you know, we're calling them out on it. And that's why they hate it. And they prefer to try and silence us rather than... Yes, that's true. You've asked the question, a very common sense question. This is Anthony Dillon. Do Aboriginal people in your home state of Queensland, my home state, feel safe at the Queen Elizabeth Jubilee Hospital at Cooper's Plains in Brisbane? I mean, you've said, do Aboriginal people in Queensland feel unsafe about the Prince Charles Hospital at Chermside? I mean, your father, I think, was at the Prince Charles Hospital, was he not? Yeah, and he's very grateful. He said they gave him fantastic service. And your father was a prominent Indigenous Australian. He was Queensland's Senior Australian of the Year. Did he have difficult issues with cultural safety when he was a patient? No, No, he is the current um, Senior Australian. There you are, sorry. So who are these people? Who are these people who think they're the gatekeepers for Aboriginal people in Victoria? Who are they? Yeah, uh, exactly. That's the question we need to ask. You know, they're, and they're planting uh, poisonous seeds in the minds of uh, many Indigenous people. And one of the concerns I have, Alan, is, uh, you know, news comes and goes so fast. In a couple of months, we will will have forgotten the details about this. But some people will just remember, oh, that hospital, that's that racist one, isn't it? Isn't that that, that culturally yeah, unsafe? You know, yeah. the details are fragmented and they just are left with that remnant of, oh, it's the unsafe one, the culturally unsafe one, which is just nonsense. I mean, this business about a voice to the parliament, should Indigenous Australia, well, firstly, I mean, you're an Indigenous Australian and an Australian. There is no one voice for all these Indigenous tribes, is there? There's no one voice. No, um, you you have voices for Indigenous and non-Indigenous and males and females and elderly and young people. Um, You know, if I look at my my family, um, are, are you saying that you need my father needs one representation and my mother needs another representation. Mm-hmm. It's very divisive, isn't Ridiculous. it? Should, should Indigenous Australians be given an extra say over matters that affect Australians generally? Like, for example, the name of a hospital. Yeah. Look, um, they already have say, and I, I welcome that too. I have no problem whatever no. platform they want to use. Um, but the sort of to fiddle with the Constitution and, and bring Parliament into it, you need and to be very, And bring race careful. into the Constitution. And that was once yeah. upon a time called apartheid, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, you make um, a brilliant so point. Not- you make a brilliant point. This mm. is Anthony Dillon about, amongst many outstanding points, he said this, I cannot help but think that such a display of virtue signalling communicates to Aboriginal Australians that they're so fragile that a name such as Queen Elizabeth for a hospital is threatening. That's a very powerful point. I mean, you say, do these protesters hope that non-Aboriginal Australians will feel such a sense of guilt because they're not affected by the naming of the hospital? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the I think, you know, the, the average Aussie wants to help, wants to see good things happen for Aboriginal people. But if they get misinformation, they could end up doing something that's not yeah. helpful. Yeah, and, okay. and, and as you make the point, you said, and I quote you, Aboriginal Australians before colonisation were able to live under harsh conditions that few of us could endure for more than three or four days. You said they were tough people. So what are we saying, yeah. Anthony? Is it today's Aboriginal people are so weak, their strength is so diluted, they're affected by two words, Queen Elizabeth? Absolutely. Uh, as they were apparently affected by the the word coon cheese, you know, that we saw that taken off the shelves. Um, you know, it's, it's just ridiculous to paint the picture of Indigenous people being that fragile. Yeah, Thankfully, coon cheese. Uh, most are not. Most most are not. No. But it is that noisy minority um, being led by Lydia and others um, who are trying to present this, this picture of a weak, frail Aboriginal people. Yes. Are you violating someone's cultural safety by saying these things? Oh, no doubt they will say it. And, um, you know, there was another line in that article, thankfully you didn't say it, which readers can read for themselves. They'll be chasing me for that. Look, I I express an opinion I, and I welcome their opinions and I'm not I'm not no. upset by their opinions. No. I disagree with them, yep. but I'm not, not devastated by them. No. You, you say brilliantly, if it's true that some Aboriginal Australians may feel unsafe because the name of the new hospital refers to the late Queen, do the same Aboriginal Australians feel safe when handling currency that has the Queen's image on it? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, well, yeah you know, I've got currency in my hand right now. I don't have a problem with it. Um, That's it. And, you know, I've, I've never heard it before, but again, all it takes is for one uh, Indigenous leader to plant that idea in their minds, and you could have them saying, you know, I'm offended by the uh, the currency. Yeah. Where where do you think, Anthony, this ridiculous nonsense will end? You say this is the latest example where it's assumed Aboriginal people are fragile and need protection from names and national holidays and anthems and brand names and cartoons. And, and, and you make the point that there are academics, you've seen them, you're an academic, tripping over themselves mm -hmm. to ensure that there's cultural safety for Aboriginal students and staff. How does this cultural safety for Aboriginal students manifest itself? It, uh, well, it means if you have a differing view, uh, you're not allowed to say it. You know, and very often, sometimes I think in um, some of these academic settings, the, um, the best cultural safety for them is to remove me from the room. Yes. Um, that way I won't say anything that's yes. going to upset them. And in so you know, any university of all places, Yes. We should have diverse opinions and, and expect to be able to voice those opinions without being labelled this or that or you yes. know, whatever. But, but students are frightened to say things that they know are inconsistent with the views of the lecturer. I mean, do you see similar yes. concerns for students and staff of other cultures? Uh, certainly nowhere near, I haven't heard of it, nowhere near as prominent as you know, the Indigenous people, they seem to be the ones that, um, you know, there's greater concern for safety, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I mean, just finally, you made this point a couple of minutes ago, but and I'll just repeat it again. So in this virtue signalling, we are sending a group, a message to a group of people who may be impressionable, they may be young, that they're weak, they're Indigenous, 
They can't handle a name without being culturally unsafe. Is there a risk that a group of people start to believe all this? I believe so. You know, how many, I don't know. But, you know, you tell a person enough times, you're weak, you're incapable, you need someone else to step in for you, and people can start to believe it themselves. Yes. I mean, we're talking about a hospital here where, as you said, many lives are saved, the quality of life has improved for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Why do we differentiate? Just a final question to you. Why do we differentiate between these two? I mean, the anthem used to say, Australians, let us all rejoice for we are young and free. And it was changed to for we are one and free. But why do we keep pretending that we're two? Yeah, uh, because, you know, one group want to be special and stand out from the others. It gives, you know, that specialness gives you a bit of clout in debate um, and other, you get more social mileage from it. Um, and, you know, in the long run, it's not helpful. Wonderful to talk to you, Anthony Dillon. I love your common sense. We'll talk again. He's a postdoctoral fellow. I mean, he's a smart academic at the Australian Catholic University. Very grateful for your time, Anthony. Thank you, Alan. There he is, Mr. Anthony Dillon. I must continue to stress the massive economic and social damage we are heading towards with this net zero nonsense. I noticed that the Greenpeace founder, Patrick Moore, no one was greener and more environmental than Patrick Moore. He quit Greenpeace in 1986, arguing it had been hijacked by the political left when they realised there was money and power in the environmental movement. And I think that we've got political non-leaders sucked in by all of this. Patrick Moore now argues that left-leaning political activists in North America and Europe changed Greenpeace, quote, from a science-based organisation to a political fundraising organisation. He said they're primarily focused on creating narratives, stories that are designed to instill fear and guilt into the public so that the public will send them money. He further said that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is, quote, not a science organisation. His words, quote, the IPCC hires scientists to provide them with quote unquote information that supports the climate emergency narrative. Their campaigns against fossil fuels, nuclear energy, carbon dioxide, plastic, etc., are misguided and designed to make people think the world will come to an end unless we cripple our civilization and destroy our economy, writes Patrick Moore. They are now a negative influence on the future of both the environment and human civilization. Today, he says, the left has adopted many policies that would be very destructive to civilization as they are not technically achievable. He says, look only at the looming energy crisis in Europe and the UK, which Putin is taking advantage of. But he writes, but it's of their own making in refusing to develop their own natural gas resources opposing nuclear energy and adopting an impossible position on fossil fuels. Now that's not Alan Jones, that's Patrick Moore, the founder of Greenpeace. Well, let's come closer to home and this climate change nonsense. An international study of major weather and extreme events by Italian scientists has found no evidence of a climate emergency in the records to date. This is a study providing a long-term analysis of heat, drought, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, which finds no clear trend of extreme events. 
And the paper found that global trends in heat wave intensity were, quote, not significant, unquote. And thank God for people like the Australian boss of Brickworks, Lindsay Partridge, who said last week that jobs, lives and businesses will be trashed by the government forcing through unrealistic net zero emission targets. And he warned of a second supply chain shock from European factories shutting down due to a looming winter energy crisis. He said because several brick and roof tile makers in Italy and Spain have already shut their manufacturing sites as the gas shortage and rampant gas prices in Europe are destroying businesses. And he said, and that strangles the supply of premium building materials in Australia. He said, everyone knows the impossibility that young people have of entering the housing market. Well, now an extraordinary decision on that issue. Because of this 82% renewable target by 2030, all homes in the country will have to be energy rated if we're to meet that target. Who said so? The former left-wing Premier of Queensland, Anna Bly, who's now head of the Australian Bankers Association. And she said this will, quote, help the country reach its carbon emissions reduction target, unquote. And she almost boasted that the markets will start to behave differently because this will, quote, affect the value of your property, unquote. What the hell would Anna Bly know? But make no mistake, once we start demanding that the housing market be energy rated and that somehow houses will be classified according to their low carbon dioxide emissions, then like everything else, to reach that target, there will be a massive extra cost. So people without a home will find themselves in a more impossible position of ever owning one. What did Patrick Moore say, the founder of Greenpeace? Quote, Greenpeace has been hijacked by the political left and that it, along with others, has adopted many policies that will be, quote, very destructive to civilization as they are not technically achievable. Now, we've got home ownership being placed further beyond the affordability for those who don't own a home. And if this rubbish goes on, they never will. Last election saw some of these political alarmists disappear over the political cliff. Hopefully this kind of political behavior will take more with them at the next election. Well, Pauline Hanson joins me now after a very significant morning in the National Parliament, introducing, now forget the rather complicated title, Offshore Petroleum and Greenhouse Gas Storage Amendment, bracket, Benefit to Australia Bill. Now, before I offer an explanation and talk to Pauline about this, my understanding is that the major parties have voted against Pauline Hanson's very, very sensible bill. It's an, in an outstanding speech this morning. She explained a very simple point, that in a massively resource-rich country, and we've made this point many times before, like Australia, we, the taxpayer, get very little benefit from the mining of those resources. Pauline Hanson quoted Norway, with a population of fewer than six million people, sitting next to the resource-rich North Sea. And Pauline Hanson argued, and I quote, the country's leaders decided long ago to make sure Norway's people who own these resources benefited from their extraction and sale. As a result, she said, Norway now has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world with a value approaching two trillion Australian dollars. 
That's more than $350,000 for every person in Norway, unquote. And then in her speech, she dwelt on Australia. And remember, the major political parties have opposed this bill. Let's bring Pauline in here right now. Pauline, good evening again. Thank you for your time. Uh, as you My say, pleasure. we've got resources of minerals and energy that make those of Norway seem insignificant. And our national anthem salutes this. You said this in your speech, our land abounds in nature's gifts of beauty, rich and rare. Pauline, that's as plain as day, but as you said, We've got enough iron ore to meet the world's need for centuries. We've some of the world's largest reserves of aluminium, uranium, gold, copper and coal. And just as with Norway, these resources ought to be, or they are, the property of the Australian people. So where do we go from there, Pauline? Alan, I have been trying and trying. The last time I put this up on the floor of Parliament was March in 2021. We have had no success with it whatsoever. The parliamentarians voted down, the two major political parties voted this down. I'm absolutely disgusted with them. For the resources that we have, we are not reaping the benefits that should enhance this nation and give people the wealth that we deserve. They've allowed the multinationals to come in and rape this nation of its resources and they don't pay tax. As I mentioned in my speech, these companies, Chevron, um, and some of them have made over $54 billion in this and paid no tax whatsoever. It's disgraceful. What's well, let's happened? just go, let's just take that, do, let's just take yeah. that step by step. Basically, you first said, which is correct, you said we should be rolling in the riches derived from the extraction and sale of these resources. We are most probably the most resource rich country in the world. But as you said, just when families are struggling with the rising cost of living, government debts 85% of GDP, there's a housing crisis, which I've already alluded to earlier in the program, where many families, you said, are sleeping in their cars or on the street. We've got some of the highest energy bills in the world. Pauline made all these points today, a crippling shortage of energy in a country which is resource rich that other countries can only dream of. Now, all of this money that we should be getting should be going to a public health system, you said, which cannot cope. We've got increasing poverty. We've got a massive welfare bill. And as a result of all of that, here are, you said, multinationals taking our resources and paying very little in return. Why did these people vote against your amendment to the bill? They're worried about the sovereignty. The coalition opposition basically said, well, look, you're putting in something into this bill which meant in the benefit of Australia. You know, that's what they're saying. So any decisions that are made of um, leasing or retention leases or deals that have been done must be in the best interest or the benefit of the Australian people. They argued the point that I could be opening up a door to... That's rubbish. Allegations that's or rubbish. legislation against, that's against you know, climate change activists and that yes. type of thing. It was a weak excuse, Alan. Yes. They talk about you're going to stop investment in Australia. Mm. You're not going to stop investment in Australia. You just why worry about it because we're not making anything out of it. So what do you got to lose? We're well, going to lose absolutely nothing. Well, to my viewers, let me just say, as Pauline made this point, I mean, you've got to say this stuff slowly and it's correct, that Australians receive the lowest share of benefits from their mineral and energy wealth of any country in the world. And yet, as you just heard her say, governments of both persuasions have allowed our resources, she made this point today, this morning, 
to be effectively plundered by mainly foreign-owned multinational companies for virtually no return to the Australian people. Now, this is where it gets, this is where it gets frightening. Pauline, you made the point that natural gas from the northwest shelf, there are trillions of cubic feet, and they're really owned by yep. the Australian people, with, owned by the, but we're the largest exporter of liquid natural gas in the world. From the northwest shelf, exports are more than 80 billion. That's $80,000 million in value. And go on, what? We get 300 million back. We get $200 to $300 million back in it. Qatar, who's the second largest exporter, they make over $26 billion income to the country. We set up Papua New Guinea with their gas and restructured their contracts there. They make over a billion dollars a year. We structured it. We can't even structure in our own country a, a plan that will give us benefits to us, the Australian people, and but revenue, you, and yet both of them. And I've got to say, I was disgusted. The Labor Party never spoke to my bill today. They never all. offered anything on the floor of Parliament. That's Labor. You've asked, you've asked the current Prime Minister and the opposition leader and senior members of the former coalition government if they understood what's going on with the riches in the northwest shelf. How do they respond? They said, never heard about it. We had no idea. And I've spoken to both of them. And I spoke to, because I wanted to draw attention to, to the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, when I had a meeting with him. And I said to him, you want to target the multinationals, pay their tax in Australia? And I said, good. I said, because I've been trying to do that for the past five years about the Northwest Shelf. He said, Pauline, I don't know anything about the Northwest Shelf. It's exactly the same. When I tried to draw attention to Peter Dutton about it, he said he doesn't know anything about it. I've spoken to other seniors in the Liberal Party. They don't know anything about it. No one seems to know anything about it. Who's running this country? Absolutely. The politicians or the bureaucrats Absolutely. who are feeding them a load of rubbish well, and see, we are not, yeah. we're not doing our jobs properly. No, I mean, Pauline made the point today, and this is for the benefit of viewers, and you've got to say this slowly, our liquid natural gas exports are continuing to climb in volume. And of course, as she said, this makes foreign-owned multinationals rich. So much gas is being exported. Now, I've talked about this over and over again, that Australia has a shortfall of domestic supplies and there is no pipeline. Pauline Hanson made this point today, delivering Northwest Shelf gas to Australia where it's needed. So Pauline, you're saying we are the only large gas producer in the world where domestic prices are higher than international prices. That's right. We are. And it's just continuing climbing all the time. And the governments are not doing anything about it. They're worried about the multinationals' foreign investment in Australia because they say, oh, they create jobs. What they've done, Alan, is they've put up, it's called a petroleum rent resource tax. Yeah. And if they invest $100 million, they get a 15% uplift factor. So when they put in their claims, it then comes $115 million that they can claim back through tax credits. So over the years, this has built up through their investments with the uplift factor the government gives them. 
they built up nearly $400 billion in tax credits. So they'll take all our gas for years and years to come and never pay us for it. That's and right. the governments have allowed it. Yes. Yes, that's Alan, exactly right. And of course, this say, they give all these political parties too money, don't they, at the end of the day? But I mean, foreign yes, owners, do. foreign owners, you made this point today, buy about 20% of our water entitlements. No one worries about that. And you've said you've got no business. This is the brilliant point that Pauline Hanson made today. This is the brilliant, the most important point. She said to the parliament, you have no business being a member of this parliament unless you are always acting in the interests of Australia and all of its people. So that's a brilliant point. Your bill was aimed at increasing the domestic supply of natural gas at a fair price. Nothing more, nothing less. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And, they and give the wealth back to the people. We own that wealth and we're not getting it. We're bloody fools, Ellen. Yes. And we've allowed our politicians to do this. Yes. And until well, you, the people you, wake up. Pauline, this lady was trying to alter Section 3 of the Offshore Petroleum and Greenhouse Gas Storage Act of 2006. Now, it states clearly that the object of the Act is, and I quote, to ensure that the exploitation of these natural resources is for the benefit of the Australian community. That's explicitly stated in the Act, a statement, of course, of the obvious. But then you're making the point that foreign-owned companies are exploiting our resources and laughing at us. You, I think you said they see Australia as a little more than a cheap dirt mine. Now, here are the figures. Yeah. Pauline quoted ExxonMobil Australia from 2014 to 2019. Revenue, about 56 billion. Pauline Hanson in the speech today, this should be the headline tomorrow everywhere. She said they pay no tax. 2014 to 2019, she quoted Chevron Australia Holdings, 28 billion revenue, no tax. Revenue from Woodside, in that period, 2014 to 2019, 43 billion and paid 1.2 billion in tax. And Pauline, your point is, these resources belong to the Australian people. They should be benefiting. Exactly right, Alan. And it would help pay down our debt. It would actually, you know, go to the resources that we need, roads, schools, you know, um, hospitals for the people in Australia. And we're reluctant to do it. Go back to what I said about Norway. For less than 6 million people living there, $2 trillion in the wealth fund. And we, uh, have, we have got more resources than what we have. We've just had absolute fools running this nation and selling us short. And I wish people would just wake up to who they keep voting for and putting back into this parliament because it's not to your benefit. Yes, I mean, basically this lady wanted the act amended, Pauline Hanson, uh, is there a more committed person to Australia's interest than this woman over and over and over again? And she wanted to amend the act to quote, ensure that the exploitation of offshore petroleum and greenhouse gas substances is for the benefit of the Australian community, a purpose of the act. Simple as that. Pauline, where do we go from here? You failed today. Alan, I've been failing on this. I've been working on this for the last five years, trying to talk to the members of parliament with regards to this, and they're all reluctant to actually do anything about it. Mm. They're either brain dead, or they don't have the interests <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Australia ah. at heart. Or, serve, or, they, or they're serving know, other interests. They're serving other interests, Pauline, other than the yeah. interests of the Australian people, which you yeah. have always represented. Leave it there. We'll keep at it. We'll keep at it. The public are starting to understand, Pauline. You're not going nowhere. 
They actually know what you're about and what you're fighting for. Thank you for that. Now, by the way, you look unbelievable. Oh, is that a sexist remark? Am I allowed to say that? You're looking fantastic. Oh, please, say more. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> I can take it. Okay. You're not fanning yourself like that, are you? <laughs> Great stuff, Pauline. Well done. Talk to you Thanks. next week. There she is. Thank you. How can you argue with anything she said there? And so where are the Labor Party and where are the coalition? She uses the expression brain dead. They've got to be close to that. Many of our young people, the hope of tomorrow, are heading to their final exams across Australia. It's speech day time. For the last two years, many of our young people were denied the final farewell to their school and their friends. This was the consequence of these appalling and unexplained lockdown restrictions imposed by government with little consideration of what impact this would have on the future of their students. One young man told me that at his school, where the parents of course had paid big money, they weren't allowed to sing the school song or the national anthem. The year 12 formal was canceled. The cadets passing out parade dinner was canceled. The final chapel service was canceled. The valedictory dinner where parents gather with their sons and daughters was canceled. And so it goes on. Students in a family where they were the only individual, the only person to have made it to university, no graduation ceremony. The degree certificate posted in the mail. And not a politician showing any concern for the damage done to these young people. And we may never know the full extent of the damage. Well, speech days are on again. I was confronted last week by parents complaining to me about what they'd heard in a speech day address at a time when these young people are making a transition from school to the wider world. They need an uplifting and motivating message. Instead, these parents were alarmed and incensed. They got a lecture on climate change, welcome to country, war, the disprized world of indigenous Australians, etc., etc., etc. Young people demotivated and depressed. And when you get such a message, it's unsurprising that we have no way of knowing the impact on the young. These young people have already been indoctrinated into all these so-called fashionable protest causes, including Black Lives Matter, climate change and the rest of it. Vulnerable students have fallen through the cracks over coronavirus. Schools don't have, and nor should they have, a proper review process to prevent, a frightening term, suicide clusters. Young people are constantly comparing themselves to others on social media and suffering mental health problems as a result. Lockdowns always ignored the statistics that teenage suicides surged during lockdowns. Mental health experts ignored by government have warned of the devastating effect lockdowns have had on young people. Such experts, as I said, are ignored. How has this crisis accelerated to this point? Well, I'll give you two blunt answers. The first is an appalling absence of political leadership. Young people are being confronted by uninformed, disinformed, illiterate, and often innumerate protest leaders urging young people to march for causes they don't understand based on arguments that can't be proven and trading on fear, which is destructive. I've argued for some time about the crisis in Western political leadership. We have leaders in the Western world giving international exposure to the uninformed, the disinformed utterances of people like the teenager Greta Thunberg. She calls herself an environmental activist. She started at 15 raving, and that's the appropriate word about climate change mitigation. She's never been challenged on the rubbish she utters, but the publicity she received has led young people to believe her and paroxysms of fear and hopelessness overwhelm these young people 
because no political leader stands their ground to dismantle this emotional, ill-informed rubbish. When these parents complained to me last week about their speech day experience, I privately called Thunberg in 2019, can you believe it? Addressing the United Nations in sickeningly emotional nonsense. She was 16, but political leaders gave this stuff a forum. I must say, Donald Trump just walked straight past. A forum in which it was belched out to the rest of the world unchallenged. Following Thunberg's United Nations outburst, I delivered a response on television. It went viral and worldwide on social media. Speech day alarmists should take note. I said way back then that young people are privately terrified and wonder where they belong. The system's broken, badly broken. And only by admitting that can we seek solutions. So principles, here's one solution, which I talked about the last time I raised this. Stop preaching alarmism and teach our children that if our young people looked at the facts rather than the propaganda that they're fed, they would learn that a child born today will have more opportunities and enjoy a safer future than at any time in human history. That child in the classroom, I've said all this before, will be blessed with a longer life expectancy than at any time in history. That child in the classroom is entering a world where poverty, health and freedom are at an infinitely better level than at any time in human history. That child will find the availability of food better than at any time in human history. That child will be safer from extreme weather than from ever before in human history. Last year, deaths from extreme weather were the lowest ever recorded. That child will enter a world where he or she will enjoy more leisure time than at any time in human history. And a greater slice of their life is available to enjoy things like music and the arts due to improved nutrition and living standards. That child in the classroom is unlikely to ever have to take up arms in defence of a nation, never have to climb out of a trench, never have to storm a beach under machine gun fire. Surely it's time to give these children a diet of positivity and hope rather than alarmism, despair and rubbish and principles. Stop being agents of despair and alarmism by the rubbish that's being trotted out at speech day graduations. Those who condone this alarmist nonsense under the guise of education are tragically destroying young people. Banish the Greta Thunbergs. The adults of today are the fear mongers. Our children are the victims. Greta Thunberg is not saving anything, let alone a planet. But she and those who condone her alarmist nonsense are tragically destroying young people's lives. Principles, try a dose of hope and opportunity. It tends to go down well. Before we go, I want to touch again from a different perspective, though, this time on the absurd madness of this net zero and green agenda, because this is absolutely critical to our future. In a surprisingly honest article by the ABC, West Australians have been warned that the state's major electricity network provider needs to spend $9 billion over the next five years to go to net zero, one billion more than originally assumed, nine billion. The worst part, you'll be paying for it. Network or poles and wires costs typically account for up to half your average electricity bill. And unfortunately, the situation is no different on the East Coast. Last week, Matt Rennie, a partner at the Brisbane-based renewable energy consultancy, Rennie Partners said, and I quote, there is a cost to climate change. 
And it means, you're not told any of this by Albanese and Bowen and those fools. He said, and it means there's a cost to global electrification. He said, these costs can't be avoided. I just don't think it's well appreciated by the average consumer. The very extreme nature of this transformation. What this man Redding doesn't admit is that the extreme nature of this transformation is already being felt. According to new data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Australia lost 121,500 manufacturing jobs in the year to August. 121,500. Yep, you heard that correctly. In the last year, we lost 121,500 manufacturing jobs in this country. Meanwhile, the average price of power in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania and Victoria increased by over 220% during that same 12-month time period. This is not a coincidence, and heads should be rolling, but they aren't, of course. My prediction is that when the situation gets as bad as it is in Europe, some heads will have to roll. Think about it. In the continent that kicked off the Industrial Revolution, 70% of fertiliser production has been halted due to soaring gas prices. So expect food shortages in Europe by Christmas. Switzerland's Environment Minister has suggested that her citizens have showers together to reduce power consumption. I'm sure Joe Biden would be excited about that. Countless steel blast furnaces have been shut down. Who, is, who in politics is even digesting this, let alone advising the electorate? Countless steel blast furnaces have been shut down due to high power prices across Central and Eastern Europe. This means Europe will import more Chinese steel made using coal-fired power and we supply the coal. In fact, the situation is so bad in some parts of Europe that many have resorted to illegally chopping down century-old trees in national parks to heat their homes and cook their food. This is the Green Revolution our politicians and elites have signed up to. Let's hope the pain and suffering Europe will feel over the coming winter will wake this country up to the simple fact that net zero is nothing more than a suicide note for the West and a blank check for the Chinese Communist Party. I've said it many times, but when I'm sick of saying it, someone out there might listen. That's it from me tonight. Thank for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.